Hi, I'm Laura Schultz. Welcome to the second season of Starting to Feel Better, a podcast about mental health journeys, trauma, and creativity. I'm so excited for this season to have conversations with writers and musicians and painters and therapists, with folks who use creativity in the work that they do. I'm really excited to share my conversations with them, with you. Welcome to season two of Starting to Feel Better. My name is Tiana Fitzsimmons. Um, I am a female licensed independent clinical social worker um, who is biracial. You know, I like to identify as a licensed independent clinical social worker because it is Uh, Something that I have spent a great deal of my life working to achieve. Um, You know, I think you can go back all the way, you know, to when you're, you know, a student before you graduate from high school and you have no idea what you want to be, you know, and then it kind of evolves across time. And then I know even when I went to grad school, I wasn't even sure if I wanted to be a therapist. I didn't quite know at that time. And then life goes on and, you know, one step kind of brings you to the next. And so I think, you know, being able to reach that point of that credential of having an LACSW, you know, is really important. Um, And something I, sometimes I just don't think that we take the time to kind of, you know, sometimes celebrate, you know, the achievements that we make. It's kind of like we make them and we're done and all right. (laughs) Female, you know, I'm proud to be female. I think we're living in a really empowering time right now where, you know, females are making bold statements in history. Um, And then also being a clinician of color is important, especially in this day and age when so much is going on in our world. And I think um, it's important to have clinicians you know, of all, of all cultures, you know, to have a a seat at the table. Um, And so I think speaking from those perspectives, um, it's kind of a way that I identify, I like to separate myself in that, you know, I'm a part of these, of these groups. Absolutely. Community and connection around those identities, as well as acknowledging how much work it is to become an LICSW. It's, you know, I don't think people realize like how many tests you have to take and how much studying you have to do and how many supervision hours you need in order to get those credentials after your name. In addition to education, there's a lot of ongoing work and education that you're totally right, is not recognized or celebrated and maybe is often just like um, assumed um, and sort of just moved on from. So I appreciate that. Yeah, that recognition. So kind of building off of what you just shared, I wondered if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about what led you to where you are now in your professional role 
whether that is through education or other things that you've experienced, or you spoke a little bit to like, I didn't really know for sure that I wanted to be a therapist, maybe um, speaking to some of the roles that you held or the visions or uh, futures that you imagined for yourself. Yeah, like I knew that I always wanted to work with people, but in what capacity was the, you know, the big question. I remember when I got to college, I had three different majors that I was interested in, maybe, you know, like, let's try some classes and see what happens. And those majors were education, social work, and psychology. And I ended up taking classes in all of them. And what led me to become a social work major is I felt like it was the most broad, meaning there are so many different avenues that I could go in terms of working with people. And so I didn't necessarily feel like I had to have it all figured out. I felt like it was pretty safe if, okay, if I go with social work, I can try this job. And if I don't like that, then I can switch and do something completely different as opposed to maybe in some other majors that might've been a little bit more straightforward in terms of what you can do and what you can't do. So I um, became a social work major. Um, I, after I graduated, I ended up working at some inner city schools in the Twin Cities doing some group work. And uh, really that was what opened my eyes in terms of learning about trauma and um, understanding maybe some of the different effects that can come into play. Um, and so that was where I realized I wanted to learn more than what I was doing currently in my job. I wanted to know, um, I wanted to know the whys, you know, and how to help kids uh, dig deeper into themselves and um, be able to open up different facets. And so I learned through my own social work supervision process that, well, from what you say that you want to do, it sounds like you're going to need a graduate degree. It sounds like you're kind of wanting to do a little bit more of the, the therapy route. And so I um, went to graduate school and um, decided from there that... I did want to move into mental health and really doing that dive deep into that, um, that therapeutic work. I did my graduate school practicum at, um, at a charter school here in town. And um, that's actually the charter school that I'm now doing school linked therapy at. Oh. And so I was doing my practicum um, more in the school social work realm. But through that, I figured out that I actually wanted to dive deeper than what school social work was offering and wanted to dive deeper into doing uh, more of that one-on-one -on -one therapeutic work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so then I got hired shortly after I graduated from uh, my graduate school uh, had got hired on um, and started doing schooling therapy at my internship site. Yeah, so mostly high school students is my target population, but I also work with middle school as well. Sure. So it was kind of through this combination of, of education opportunities, through education, through um, practicums and internships that really sort of tested this theory that I think I want to work with high school students, with middle school students in a therapeutic 
um, in a therapeutic way, in outpatient therapy, especially. Yeah. Yeah. Just really connected to to kids and teens in particular. Mm -hmm. Kind of shifting into the specific of trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. I wondered if you could provide mm, kind of an outline of what that is, what that looks like, maybe how you've seen its effectiveness come across with clients. Yeah, so TFCBT, which stands for Trauma-Focused Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, it is an evidence-based treatment model that helps children um, who have experienced varying forms of trauma in their lives, helps them heal from those traumas. Um, Now, this model, as I said, it's evidence-based, so meaning that there's been research done on this model Uh, to prove its effectiveness. So um, kids who complete this model from beginning to end have been shown to have a reduction in their symptoms, um, their uh, mental health symptoms uh, that were originally caused by their trauma. And so how it works is um, TFCBT is evidence-based for kids ages, I think it's like age seven to 18. Um, So there is a younger version of, uh, or um, there is a version uh, that is for younger children, um, which is called CPT. Um, And so TFCBT then picks up at age seven. Um, And so it really focuses on that older childhood into the adolescent years. And how TFCBT works is it's a very linear model in which the bottom half of the model focuses on building the basic coping skills. Uh, We call them PRAC skills. Uh, Basic coping skills of how to uh, talk about their trauma. And so we start at the bottom with uh, psychoeducation about learning about what trauma is and how it affects the body. Then we move into the handling stress category, which is basic coping skills. Then we move into identifying and expressing feelings. You know, how do, how do we identify what we are feeling? What does it feel like in our body? Um, what emotions are we experiencing? And then we move into cognitive coping, which basically means changing thoughts. So when we change the way we think about things, Sometimes that can change the way we feel and then how we behave. Um, So those are the four basic uh, PRAC skills that we do at the very base of the TFCBT model. And then once the child successfully completes those stages, then we move into writing a trauma narrative. And what a trauma narrative consists of is it's almost like a life story in a way that the client writes about themselves. And we do it in a fashion. Now, this is kind of, um, it can be adaptable to how the kid wants it. But a basic format is where the kid will narrate the story and I, as the therapist, will type it out for them. That's one way. I I basically say to the kids, you know, like, I'm going to be your secretary. You talk and I type and then we'll read it and edit it together. Uh, Some kids maybe who don't like talking as much or it's hard to talk about their trauma, we might use the art. You know, we might use drawing where the kid actually draws a scene about what happened to them. 
without even having to use words, they can express it that way. However, it's still important that we put the words to the story, because if we can't say what happened, we can't feel it. And if we can't feel it, then we can't heal. And so sometimes that can be a modality of using art that makes it a little bit more, um, a little bit more comfortable um, as you go through the process of talking about the traumas that have happened in the past. So basically the basic format of a trauma narrative is, you know, there's the introduction, or excuse me, there's a um, title. So the child will actually title, what is the name of their story? And then they'll create an introduction section, which is kind of like an all about me, you know, my name, my age, maybe anything that's important to me, anything about my life, my family, it's kind of whatever they want. It's kind of just a little introduction about themselves before we move into talking about, you know, some of the challenges that they've experienced. Then they move into writing a happy memory section. And the reason why we do this in TSCBT is because oftentimes trauma has to do with loss. And so um, you can't really talk about a loss if you can't talk about, you know, something that you had at one point in time, you know, um, because when you lose it, that's, you know, where that hurt comes from. So we talk about um, happy memories, maybe that one had before the trauma happened, or maybe happy memories that they had with a certain person who then, um, who then betrayed them, you know? Um, and so there's a happy memory section. Then we move into the trauma narrative sections where, and this could be several chapters on if a child has had one trauma all the way up to 10 different traumas. Right. There's different chapters where we outline the events. Um, and in those chapters, the child, I facilitate the child to um, help narrate about what happened. Um, and then from there, we do the trauma processing where I help the child identify thoughts and feelings about uh, what had happened. And oftentimes in identifying thoughts and feelings, we'll come across cognitive distortions, mm-hmm. which basically are negative beliefs that one has made about themselves, about the world, in relation to the trauma that they experienced. So, for example, a child maybe who is sexually abused, a cognitive distortion might be is that it was my fault. Right. You know, and obviously we know, no, the person who did that to you, it was their fault, you know. And so I help them, I help the child to challenge those distortions to get them to see um, you know, the inaccuracy of their thoughts and help them to create new narrative around that. And then once we do that throughout the entire narrative where we process um, all of the different distortions that come out, then after that, we have, I have the child write a making meaning section. Mm-hmm. So basically, you know, this is what I think about what has happened to me now you know, which might be very different than how they thought about things before. Could it be anything from this is what I learned to this is um, how I would go about things differently if anything like this were to ever happen to me again. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it helps kids to actually put into a physical form, um, you know, what's going on inside their head. 
um, and put it out onto paper. Now, after they write their narrative, this is kind of where the most important part comes is narrative sharing. So TFCBT is actually has a caregiver component to the model, meaning whether that caregiver is a parent or whether it's another supportive adult in that child's life, whether that's a foster parent or a teacher or someone else, um, someone that can be able to witness the narrative of the child. Now, one of the things about doing TFCBT is we have to use what's called um, gradual exposure, meaning that oftentimes kids um, have extreme avoidance about talking about the bad things that have happened to them. It's very hard. It's very painful to revisit. And so I, as a therapist, have to coach them um, on getting used to talking about their trauma, but doing it in bits and pieces so <laughs> that we're not completely flooding them. So I like to use what's called the stoplight system with my kids where, you know, I say, are we at a green light, yellow light, or red light? Green light meaning I'm okay, good to go to talk about this. Yellow light meaning, okay, I'm getting uncomfortable. I don't know how much longer I can go talking about this all the way to a red light where it's like, nope, not talking about this anymore. I'm done. And I, that helps me work at the child's pace. Um, to be able to determine how much we talk about in a particular session. And so I always tell the kids, you know, if we get to a yellow light, we've done our job. It means we're addressing it, but we're also not completely avoiding it. You know, where we have a little bit of discomfort, but not too much where we're getting flooded. So I use that process all the way from the beginning of the model, where we start talking about it bit by bit by bit until we get up to the narrative where we really start hashing things out. And then, as I'd mentioned, there's a caregiver component. So um, I assess a caregiver in the child's life, someone who will be able to witness the narrative. Um, and sometimes it could be a caregiver who's a part of the narrative, and sometimes it might not be. It depends. Mm -hmm. It depends on the quality of the relationship and if that parent is has a, a, a readiness and a willingness to uh, be able to be there for the child, to support the child, um, who believes the child, you know, right. someone who doesn't deny that what happened to them actually, you know, actually it did happen. <laughs> um, and someone who basically is just going to be able to be there um, and hold the emotions of the child um, without having their own process um, intercede. And so there's gradual exposure that happens with the caregivers as well, uh, because especially for some, it might be hard, you know, very emotional thing to hear from their child, all these details as to what they've experienced. Mm -hmm. um, and so a gradual exposure process also has to happen with the caregivers as well. And so after the child writes their trauma narrative, they then share it um, with uh, a, an adult caregiver where they read it out loud. And that's in the presence um, of me as the therapist, along with the child and the caregiver. Could be multiple caregivers, it, it depends. Um, and the child will share it. And that's one of the key parts 
of TFCBT as far as that healing process is, um, you know, kind of that thing about, you know, when you're able to say it is when you're able to acknowledge that it's, it's real and that it happened. And then that response that we get from the caregivers as well, you know, of support and, you know, wow, like that validation and, um, acknowledgement of, wow, how strong of a kid are you? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, to be able to have their story be held. Um, And then after the narrative is shared, then we move into the final component of TFCBT, which is uh, future safety plans. And basically what that means is... um, based on the traumas that have happened to me in the past, what are my triggers and what is a plan that I can have um, if these triggers come up again and how am I maybe going to deal with them differently or in a new way um, than I have in the past. And that can really range on what that looks like, depending on what specific trauma a child discloses. And so that's kind of a, an overview of the TFCBT process. And throughout that process, in the beginning, in the middle, and at the end, um, child and parent are also doing assessments where we're um, really trying to gauge what their symptomology is like in the beginning, in the middle, and at the end of treatment. Right. And more often than not, we see whether it's by a little bit or whether it's by a lot, we see a difference in the symptoms from the beginning of treatment um, as opposed to at the end of treatment, um, where we see how their symptoms off more than often lower. Right. It sounds like there is some specificity to how long each of these sections might go on. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. So kids that I've typically done the model with, it it can really range depending on the um, amount of trauma a kid has experienced. And also it can depend on um, therapy attendance and Mm -hmm. caregiver attendance. So there's lots of different factors. But I would say on average, like this treatment model, if a child is attending every week, once a week, every week, and caregivers are, you know, doing their sessions as they need as well, I'd say it ranges anywhere between three to nine months. Um, But again, it really depends. (laughs) It depends on the child. It also depends on the pace of the child, too. As I mentioned, that gradual exposure process, some kids need you to take it way slower than maybe you even think, you know, and so that can sometimes stretch out the length. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So why was this something that you chose to get trained in and certified in? The sheer amount of kids that I was working with have dealt with trauma or have experienced trauma. And I noticed in my role as a therapist, I felt like I didn't quite have, I don't know if it's right to say I had enough tools in my toolkit, Mm -hmm. but more, but kind of like that, where I'm like, you know, I need something more 
I need a more intense fashion of how I'm going to go about taking all of this apart because it's very complex. And I feel like TFCVT really offers a valid structure of Mm -hmm. how to go about things and to know, not know what to expect, but to know what to expect in the process. Yeah. And so it really helped me to feel much more prepared um, in doing that, that deep work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I really like this concept of, different modalities or ways of processing trauma, bringing structure to chaos. Yes. And I think of this modality and mm, maybe how specific, how planful it is really being a terrific way to showcase that we can bring structure to something that feels so completely out of control, feels so completely chaotic feels unnameable maybe at the beginning and then through the process of TFCBT really being able to have so much power in naming what my narrative looks like sounds like um, how it's delivered yeah a lot of pieces there around empowerment and bringing structure to chaos that I love absolutely you nailed it and then you spoke to this as well um In what ways have you seen creativity benefit individuals who have survived or experienced trauma? In my opinion, I think one of the benefits of using creative modalities in processing or dealing with trauma is, I think movement is a big piece um, to processing trauma. And so when you think about a lot of our creative modalities, whether it be dance or whether it be yoga, whether it be drawing or painting or you name it, um, all of those things, you have to do some type of movement. And when we think about how stress responses from trauma, how they happen in our bodies um, is they actually like get stuck. (laughs) You know, when we can't process, when our brain can't process a trauma, it it gets stuck in the fascia of our bodies. And so movement really helps us to be able to effectively cope with that. And so I know that's why, you know, there's um, always like a huge um, benefit to exercise, but I think really kind of any kind of movement as well. Um, You know, even with your hand, you know, with drawing, painting. Um, I think there's something to say in terms of regulation um, that those creative arts bring um, because they use, you know, some form of movement as you process. We, I I just think about physically how when I'm anxious, I feel like I want to shake it off. Right. And so to physically create those environments where that's encouraged, where that's acknowledged and encouraged rather than um, sort of a, a similar refrain of like, sit still, calm down. Right. Like, no, I think I need to move in order to be able to calm down and then sit still. So I love that. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So I have just a couple more questions for you as we wrap up. 
And they have to do with like this present moment where we're at right now. Um, I like to end by asking guests a little bit about how you're staying connected and feeling balanced, especially in light of stay-at-home orders, um, the maybe ongoing stress and anxiety of COVID-19, of political landscapes, of um, police brutality, systemic racism, all these kind of collective traumas that we are really in the middle of that are not new, but we are maybe seeing in different ways now uh, than we have in the past. And so the question is really just kind of some real world ways that you are um, responding to those traumas and remaining connected, feeling balanced with the acknowledgement that <sighs> different days feel different, you know, like, and sometimes things work and sometimes things are a little bit tougher. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think, you know, you know, 2020 has definitely been a year for the books for many people for many reasons. And, you know, I think, you know, the pandemic and civil unrest are just name a couple. Yeah. Um, and I know that I have personally had a few breakdowns, you know, yeah. through this process of, you know, being isolated and quarantined and, you know, feeling shut, shut down and away from the things that normally bring me joy. I'm not able to go to those things as much or that kind of a thing. Um, and then, you know, everything from the civil unrest to um, all of this heavy um, divisiveness that's going on in our political world. Right. It's very overwhelming. So one of the first things that I've actually done is I've really been conscious about how I limit my social media use. Yeah. I mean, even during the week that George Floyd was murdered, I took a virtual break yeah. for a little bit that week because it was, it was like the world was screaming so loud and everybody just wants to be heard. And yeah my system was like, I can't take this, you know? And so not to say that, you know, just avoid it, but I think you can um, take everything within moderation. Absolutely. And then also being cognizant of, you know, your sources of information and what is being put out there on social media just to fuel arguments versus actually have productive conversations um, you know, just really being mindful about what you say, when you say it, and why you're saying something. You know, I was even limiting myself as to, you know, restraining myself from posting things unless if I had put significant thought into why am I posting this, though? You know, and for what reason and mm -hmm. whose benefit and, um, you know, how can I go about this in a productive way? Um, and so I'd say even in just regards to that, you know, um, just being more cognizant overall on social media. And then going back to movement. Movement is a huge thing. Um, getting outside and, you know, going for like walk. Um, I have grown up with a background in dance. I actually, during this pandemic, I actually reached out to an old instructor of mine and started doing um, some private lessons for myself awesome. because I had noticed, you know, 
wow, dance was such a huge coping skill for me growing up, like that I didn't even realize how much because I'm recognizing, you know, now in the thick of, you know, my work and everything going on in the world, the state of the world right now, I was realizing I was breaking down because I'm like, well, A, I'm not having any fun Mm. and B, um, I have nothing to like look forward to that's just for myself. Um, and so I thought, well, I'm going to call her up and see if she'll take me for private lessons. And she totally did. And so I'm working on, you know, on my own craft at home. And so I think it's really important for people to, to be able to find something that's for themselves, um, something that can bring them joy, no matter what else is going on in the world, that you have your something that you can come back to. For me, that's dance. For my husband, that's golf. Mm-hmm. You know? And so whatever it is for you, you know, even if it's hard to find, you know, you might have to kind of look, you might have to kind of dig around to find it for yourself. Um, but let that be your task. Find something that you love and, and make time for it and do it. I completely agree. I'm thinking about how sometimes people come up against this barrier of but doing things for myself is selfish. How do you respond to that. I know how I do, but I'd love to hear what you say. I've heard that. I literally just had my cousin say that to me the other week. And I say, I say, no, you're not. I'm like, cause she said, you know, well, I feel selfish on, you know, taking time to work out instead of, you know, taking care of my kids. I say, mm-hmm. no, you're not because you're being a better mom by investing in yourself. Because mm-hmm. when you invest in yourself, you are going to you are going to be a better mom the time that you do. You're going to be more present with your kids when you are with them yeah. because you're going to be happier. Right. You're filling your cup. And so then you're going to be able to fill others from there. Mm-hmm. And you're it's modeling so that important. for others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so important. It's important to model. Like I think about that. It's important for me to model to my kids that, yep, it's good for mommy to have time away and yeah. mommy does what she loves and she goes for it, yeah. you know? And so you got to really think about that. You know, it's that you are worth the investment. Completely. Yeah. I always say like we live inside of ourselves, so we have to take care of ourselves. And, and I think that experiencing joy is an incredibly big part of the human experience. And when we cut ourselves off from that, we're cutting ourselves off from a huge part of what's wonderful about being alive So absolutely. Yeah. You're modeling it. You can be a better everything when you, when you are um, experiencing a better quality of life. Yeah, absolutely. So the very last question I like to ask is whether it's based on your own experience or whether it is kind of uh, therapeutically, maybe a go-to what's one thing that someone could do right now to begin to feel more grounded or centered or help them through an intense, maybe unpleasant emotion? Yeah, I have one exercise that I like to do um, when I'm experiencing maybe an intense emotion, something that I can't quite put my finger on. I actually just facilitated this with a client today. It's called free association journaling. And what I like about it is that it offers, you know, that movement 
component, but also um, creates a space for you to physically put onto paper what's going on in your head. And so how it works is you just, you know, put a pen to a piece of paper and you just start writing and you don't really think about it. You just let your mind kind of take control and you just start writing. You don't worry about um, your handwriting. You don't worry about punctuation. You don't worry about writing within the lines. You don't worry about spelling. You don't, you don't worry about anything like you and, and, Think of it in terms of that no one else is ever going to see what you wrote. If you want, at the end of the exercise, you can rip the paper out and rip it up or shred it. But write with the intention that no one else is going to see what you're writing. And just start writing. And people, sometimes people will go, well, what if I don't know what to write about? I say, write about how you don't know what to write about. Write it Mm -hmm. down. Write, I don't know what to write about because I'm feeling so nervous because she just asked me. Just write. Mm -hmm. Write, 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 write. And then once you get going, you'll kind of start to notice that things start to come out that maybe you didn't really know was there. Could be thoughts, could be feelings, could just be, I don't know, cathartic in, in some way of just being able to let it go, let go of that perfection as well. No one's going to read it. doesn't matter what your spelling is. doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter. What matters is just the process. And so I feel like sometimes, you know, people can go through that exercise and at the end, they're like, whew, I feel like kind of relieved, you know, and like, I don't even need to go back and reread or I don't want to go back and reread what I wrote, you know, like I, that did enough for me. Or some people, they'll go back and reread it and really be able to kind of put things together in a clearer way of, oh, wow, I did not even put those two things together that this might be something that's going on for me. And if you are already doing your own therapeutic work, sometimes it is good if you bring that notebook then into therapy, Um, because sometimes um, that can shed a new light for the therapist to help you work through certain things if you're open to that as well. And I'm really struck by this concept that we've discussed a few times on the podcast before about process versus product that when we're creating things, whether it's writing in a journal or creative writing of some kind, singing, dancing, creating music in some way, that doing it just to do it, just to have the experience of doing it uh, is really where we can maybe experience some of that freedom, that, that, um, that joy. Whereas when we're creating for a product, I want you know, to show this to someone, I want this to whatever, be on the radio. We're going to feel real different about it. So I really like just how much you focused on um, non-judgmental creativity. So thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the podcast and have a conversation with us. I have really appreciated learning more about TFCBT from you and a little bit about your own experience with creativity. I'm so excited for you that you have dance in your life. That's that's wonderful that you have kind of reconnected with it in the midst of such a bizarre, intense, difficult time. Yes, yes. Thank you so much, Laura, for asking me to do this. It was fun. Thanks for listening. 
This has been starting to feel better. We hope that you'll join us next time for another conversation with a fascinating, creative, incredible guest. <laughs>